Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Hi, Vinny. Hi, Growth listeners. Today, I got Jimmy Burrows. Uh, now, if you're trying to watch us live, you might have realized we're a little bit behind. If you're listening to the audio, you would never be the wiser. So I just kind of gave you a scene behind the, the curtain right there. But technology happens. But again, as you know, anyone listening as an entrepreneur, push through, figure out a way. And in the end, technology can be our friend. Thank you, Jimmy, for being here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, yeah, I can fully put hands up and say the technology was my end, not your end. So I appreciate you, uh, your patience. No, no, no problem at all. The, um, so you're a, a leadership coach and a consultant. Um, I mean, this is this is the question that I use all the time. I, I mean, I started out as a, a lot of different businesses, maybe more real estate related. And I think, man, for the last like 50 episodes I've had, I want to say about maybe 20 of them have been coaches. So it's a pretty big high number of coaches. And so the question that I've, I've started to ask people is what separates you from other coaches? What separates me from other coaches? Good question. Um, and, you know, it, it, it. I guess every coach is going to give you their pitch or their story or their background. And, and so um, I'll try and be a little bit different in the way I approach this um, because I am different. I guess the, the place where I start is Gulf War II. Um, so my first job out of university was the second Gulf War um, as a young 23-year-old uh, rocking up in Iraq and being given responsibility for resupplying Basra um, and all of the British Army regiments that were located inside the city uh, from, you know, from day one. Um, I literally uh, flew from my training establishment over to Germany uh, walked around the kind of moth-eaten and cobweb-laden stores, picking up whatever I could, and then got myself out to Kuwait, and then we hitchhiked up from Kuwait to Basra. Why do I tell you that story? Um, well, I guess from you know, the very first moment in my career, leadership has been a core principle that has featured both through going through the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is um, our equivalent of West Point, uh, through to leading soldiers on the ground in a war zone with very little preparation time. I say two days to get ready for that. Um, and the reality of what that might mean um, that's when the stakes are quite high, you have to kind of step up to the plate pretty quickly. So um, that I think is has been something that stuck with me through my entire career is that you need to sometimes um, knuckle down, dig deep and rely on what you know and rely on your skills to get through. And so what I do with leaders and what I've done through my own career is a process which I now call experimental leadership that has been developed over the last 20 years, um, which is let's just try something um, because we have to do something, especially in this more, we call it VUCA world, but the more volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world that we now operate in post-COVID, even more so. It's like being in a war zone. It's chaos everywhere and everything's happening. You've got to do something. So that's what makes me different now. Different now is is my my career started in the military uh, in a war zone. It went through a corporate, generic HR um, guys, and then I decided to do something again and change it up completely. So now I'm operating remotely and independently from from Mexico, 
um, but have been in 69 countries globally uh, running this business. And it's been incredible. So we're um, in Mexico. Uh, we are based in Los Cabos, just outside. Uh, most people know Cabo San Lucas. Um, so we're about 30 kilometers away from there. Nice. Now, you brought it up twice about kind of shorter shortage time, right? Only two days while you're in the military to kind of lead and then the volatility. So a lot of things changing. So you have to kind of change, I guess, the direction you're going. How do you how do you view a leader in a shorter period of time compared to maybe if you got uh, a month, uh, two months to kind of put together a game plan? Is there a difference in the way you look at it? Is it different how they act or so on and so forth? I guess that there's, there's a lot of depends on that question. Um, it, it depends what context you're in. So are you in a situation where they are um, where they are under pressure or not under pressure? That makes people react differently. Um, how, what what have you got to try and achieve with them? Is it a you know an assessment of their capability? Is it making a fundamental change? Um, but one of the things that the military gives you, and and subsequently sort of through doing senior leadership roles and MBAs and neuroscience qualifications and you know all other things you kind of bolt on along the way, I've learned about people assessment and I can assess somebody pretty quickly um, to get a, a measure of them. I'm normally about 80% of the time I'm right, which means I'm 20% of the time I'm really wrong, uh, which is you know, unfortunate. Um, but normally you can get a good measure of somebody just by the way they communicate, by the way they hold themselves, by the way they act, um, and with some experience behind me to kind of make that assessment. How often outside of, I guess, business, are you making an assessment of another person? Like, let's say you go to the bar. Of the bartender of the coffee shop. I mean, are you? Is it just like ingraining you to make these quick assessments? It really is. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess from having been in war zones where you're looking at people's faces, watching facial expressions, watching body language, thinking about what might be happening in that circumstance. Now I find myself um, creating narratives in my head for people in restaurants and bars. You know, I wonder what they're up to. This is the story. This is the background story for that person. Uh, how does that work? Um, but equally, I find myself doing the same thing with, you know, the leaders and the managers in restaurants and bars and hotels and cafes. You go, how are they interacting with their people? What am I seeing here? What's the level of engagement of these staff? Um, and you often can go, I could see a really small thing we could change right here, right now that would make a difference. And often I'll pitch up and I'll just say, hey, I wonder if, I wonder if you've ever thought about this um, and just see what the conversation turns into. When, when you're, let's say, helping a, a leader and you're, you're coaching them, right, and you're you're moving kind of quick, quick on trying to like figure out who this person is. Is there ever a time, I know you said that sometimes you're, you're, it can be incorrect in your assessment on the person really quick. Is there a way that it ever hinders you or you have to pull back a little bit, still allow them to kind of talk and then, and then kind of give the feedback or how does, how does that process kind of work when you're, when you're dealing with the client? So one of the important things to do as a coach is to ask, not tell. Um, and so my assessment might be something and all that's going to do is inform my first few questions. Um, and so I'm not going to go and go, I'm seeing this and you should do this. It's I'm seeing this. I wonder what would be going on in your head in the circumstance or what's tell me what's going on for you or what are you seeing right now? Um, and that will affirm or redirect my next question, which is, OK, well, based on that, what could we change? Um, what might we change? What what could be an opportunity for you that would make this easier, less challenging, less stressful, less burnout likely? 
Um, but it, all you're doing is, in, you know, you're not going, I'm saying this, you're wrong. You're, you're informing the next question and the next question. And your job as a coach is to, is to help the other person's thinking, is to give them those light bulb moments where they have a bit of a breakthrough for themselves, not because you're putting it in their head going, you should do this or you should think this. So you basically have a kind of an idea of what you're thinking you're getting into, yet you still are open-minded to maybe the road's not going to take you in that direct, that same direction and allow the kind of conversation to kind of lead you where you really need, really should go. Sure. Yeah. So I can give you a perfect example. Um, I met with a, a hotel GM a couple of weeks ago and my assessment of him immediately was he was a highly introverted, highly analytical person. Um, and the level of engagement of his staff was pretty good because he came across pretty well, but he struggled with communication. So that was my kind of snap assessment based on 30 seconds of talking to him. Um, as the, uh, as the conversation went on and I asked more questions, actually he was an imposter. So he had imposter syndrome. He really struggled with confidence. So he wasn't introverted. He was un underconfident. He had high anxiety. Um, his communication was good, but when he was under high stress, um, he struggled to get his message across. Hmm. So as you kind of, as you dig a little bit deeper and as you find out a little bit more, that initial assessment is refined and becomes more detailed. And that allows you to have a better, a better conversation. Um, if you go in with presupposition, uh, then you could potentially go down a track you don't want to go. And again, as a coach, you're not taking somebody where you want to go. You're taking them where they want to go and supporting them. Makes sense. Now let's go back to, to your journey. So you talked about that, that you went to, to West Point and then West Point joined the military. So did you always have the mindset of being in the military as a young kid? Yeah. So I actually went to Sandhurst, which is the, the British equivalent of West Point. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So same, same kind of idea, officer training for a year, 44 weeks, seven days a week, 20 hours a day. It's pretty intense. Um, but I'd been in that kind of military world since I was 12 years old. In the UK, we have a thing called cadets, which is like kids ROTC. Yeah. Um, and you, it was part of my schooling. So twice a week, we would uh, play soldiers. And I thought, well, this is pretty fun. And I quite like the discipline and the structure and the routine. Um, I'm pretty good at it. So uh, when I finished up at university, I was like, well, what do I do next? I could go and get a real job or I could continue that playing soldiers thing. Um, and when I joined, there was nothing happening in the world. You know, if you were very unlikely, you'd end up in Cyprus or maybe in former Yugoslavia for a peacekeeping mission. And literally within the space of 12 months, as we all know, um, things changed fairly dramatically post 9-11. And uh, the world became a very different place. And, and obviously the military stance alongside that became very different. So uh, I found myself joining for adventure training and um, for playing soldiers. And I found myself in, in combat three times. Um, in twice in Iraq and once in Afghanistan, I found myself training various different groups globally in, in multiple countries. Uh, and I found myself having a pretty tempestuous and exciting career for, for the six years that I served. Was there a time where it was doing the activities that you said, playing soldiers to where actually you knew you're like a, a, a soldier? I mean, there's people that say that I think I've heard Mike Tyson talk about it, that there's basically people that box and there's actually boxers. They're doing the activities, doing the action, but deep down, they're not really boxers. They don't have that hunger. Was there a difference that kind of happened with you when you're playing it compared to actually being it? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I completely hear you. Um, yes, in a way, yes. You know, when you're playing, the stakes are not high. Um, the, you're doing it because you wanna, you wanna get a good training result. Um, it all becomes extremely real when you're in um, preparation for or actually in a war zone 
um, and you're seeing people, friends, colleagues, people you don't even know, but they're in the same you know, regiment or the same part of the military as you, or even just a wider part of the military or, or you know, your colleagues um, suddenly getting injured and hurt, it makes it very real very, very quickly. And I had, um, I don't know if you call it the luxury or, or the trauma of watching a lot of my friends go to Iraq for the start of the war. I got there towards the end of the war. Um, so listening to some of the stories they were telling, reading some of their letters and going, oh my God, this is, you know, this is genuinely real. And I think I'm very grateful for the fact that I've been doing it for nearly 10 years by the time I got there. Um, as a kid and through university, I'd had the kind of the basics, but you refine your art very quickly, both as a leader, um, you know, as an officer and, uh, and leading men, uh, and also as an individual soldier, your personal skills um, refine very quickly when the stakes are much higher. And it's something I use now in, in in the experimental leadership mindset. And when I'm working with leaders, I'm like, we well, are not playing at being a leader. You are a leader and you've got to step up. And this is real right now. These are people's careers you're playing with, people's families you're playing with, people's homes you're going inside in, during your meetings. Um, you need to play it like it's real every day. Um, that doesn't mean you're putting immense pressure on yourself. It just means doing the best job you can and stepping up to the plate because your people expect you to deliver for them. When that transition of, I guess, being a, um, a soldier, right, um, maybe even being a leader, right, in the in the foxhole where you're, everything seems like it's not working out or just it starts being real and you kind of either it's either fight or flight, right? What what did you, if you went through it? I don't know if you went through it. What basically pushed you to to keep going forward and not say, I want to just be be here in this little hole kind of thing? Look, I think, you know, every everybody when the bullets are flying and when the bombs are exploding, everybody wants to stay in the hole. Um, there's two pieces that get you out. Number one, um, you're a leader. So it's your responsibility to lead everybody else to safety, um, whether that's away from the enemy in a tactical retreat or whether that's through the enemy um, and doing whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you keep your people as safe as possible and eliminate or mitigate that threat. So that's the first piece is you're a leader. Um, second piece is you would be surprised how much brainwashing goes on in the military to train you to be confident in those moments. Um, whether it's desensitization of you know explosions and noise, whether it's training in terms of making almost autopilot what you do when the when things start going a little bit curly, um, then you know you almost find yourself looking back and go, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. And you find yourself looking at the situation and seeing yourself react. Um, your job is to, is to lead. So you, you step up and you start leading and you start paying attention to what's going on, doing a situational assessment, making choices on what you're seeing around you, assessing options, and then, and then calling shots um, and making sure that you do whatever you can do to keep the people who are working with you safe. And so you're leading, you're in the military, when did the the transition of leaving the military kind of start to happen or starting even thinking about the idea of leaving the military happen for you? So yeah, I I ended up leaving just post after um just after an Afghanistan post. Um I'd felt like I'd done everything I was going to do in the military and it was just going to be more of the same. And I got to that level of seniority where the jobs were less um frontline and more operationally sort of headquarters based. Uh so would have been behind the front lines and, and, and supporting and doing administration for a few years. So I thought, well, 
I've, I've really enjoyed some of the qualifications I've picked up in the army. Why don't I go and try those in another context? And I guess that belief from having been in the military that, well, I can give it a go and I can make it work and I'm oh, something's going to happen. So I need to try it, you know? Um, so decided in 2007 to transition out of the military, we call it resettlement, um, went through a whole heap of amazing resettlement education that the military provides for service leavers. So I ended up doing some project management and program management qualifications and then gradually kind of wended my way through the HR consulting world into internal HR, mainly focused on leadership development. So taking the stuff I'd learned in the military and applying it with initially like warehouse managers, um, but then moving into more corporate leadership development and, and that, you know, over the next 15 years, um, refined my art as I went along the way, uh, developing leadership development, talent development and culture development programs. Now that transition of being in the HR and helping people kind of understand and, and train them, right? what was the difference or one of the differences um from training a soldier in the way of kind of following you compared to a civilian to follow you yeah that's a great question and, and often i think people misconstrue military leadership as shooting and shouting um and when i came out of the military i was quite surprised by how focused and disciplined many people were in the corporate world they were trying their very best they were doing everything they could do, but often there's resource limitations or constraints that they were struggling against. And so when you're working with a leader who is, you know, not a military leader, but they've got a, a large leadership responsibility, they've also got other pressures. You know, as an, as an army officer, you don't have to worry about budgets. You don't have to worry about um, at working hours in the day. You don't have to worry about health and safety was just starting to kind of become more of an emphasis, but it wasn't a serious thing. Psychological safety wasn't really a thing when I was in the military. It was just, you know, hey, get on with it. Um, a modern leader has to worry about all of those things. Uh, and so they're actually dealing with more moving parts, more levers pulling them in different directions. And so one of the things I had to, I guess, empathize with was instead of just saying, suck it up, big fella, get on with it. Um, you know, your job is to deliver, so go deliver. It's, okay, well, let's actually understand some of the things that are getting in the way from you. How could we reduce some of those things? How could we help you with some of those things? Okay, now we've kind of moved the noise out of the way. Can you go and do what it is you want to do as a leader? Uh, and as simple as something like, hey, we will build a training course for you in the military. The training course is on this day. You turn up at this time and you do the training course. In the corporate world, uh, You've got 15 meetings also booked that day and somebody has a welfare crisis and there's a emergency that comes up in the corporate part that you have to go and attend to. Oh, and there's a training course. So your job is in, in the training world and the leadership world is how can we support you best to do leadership development when it suits you best, when you have time for it, when you have capacity and when we're delivering as tightly and concisely to the needs you have. And, and that's where we, I guess, where we've developed most of the programs that, that we run as, as a business is they're short bite-sized chunks um, rather than taking two or three days out of the office. It's more focused on, okay, can we do 45 minutes together when you can squeeze me in? Uh, and, and then you can take that straight away into your next meeting and apply that lesson, apply that insight, apply that idea to the rest of your working day. And then let's talk about it tomorrow and see how that went. And actually, we see that has a greater effect than let's take you out of the office for three days, train you, then you go back with thousands of emails in your inbox and you just haven't got time to absorb and you know incorporate all those ideas we shared with you because you're overflowing. 
So the the chunks of ideas are more bite-sized of, hey, take care of this, work on this. When we reassess in a week or a day or whatever it is, we'll go over that and then we'll talk about the next idea. Exactly that. And that's the idea of an experiment, right? Um, if you run 50 experiments at the same time, you're never quite sure which experiment made the difference. Um, whereas if you're running one at a time focused on one specific thing, you know, is it let's get our goals really landed? Is it let's get purpose on track? Is it change the way you communicate slightly? Is it have a feedback conversation? But if you try and do all of those things at once, you're probably going to do a bad job of all of them or an average job of all of them. Whereas if you're just focusing on the one thing for a week um, and you get a couple of times to reiterate and try and reflect, then you're more likely to get an outcome. So we shrunk down the way we deliver the curriculums to people in terms of let's take one idea every time we get together. Let's really go hard on that idea for a little bit of time and build by 1% and then build by 1%. And what we see over a period of time is because obviously all these concepts are linked at a at a meta level, you start to see there's almost like the, the fishing net analogy that one thing catches and it starts to drag everything else along with it. So if you improve one thing, it improves lots of things at the same time, but you're doing it subconsciously for the leader. We've got a, we've got a plan, but for the leader, it's one thing at a time so they can focus on one thing at a time. Well, you said that that transition of understanding that took you a little time to kind of realize. Was there a frustration on your part because you were originally giving a whole meal instead of just an appetizer, a taste. Was there sure. a frustration or how did, how did you work through that frustration? Yeah, I mean, I remember in my early days in the corporate world, you know, spending six months creating a three-day leadership program or a seven-day leadership program and sending out the invitations and you get, you know, 30% of the number of applicants that you would hope for. And then on the day, five people would turn up and then you'd be really disappointed and wonder why. Um, I very quickly learned that that was not the way it was going to work. Um, you know, probably, I probably within six months, I'd work that out one time. Um, but initially it was like, oh, but we've put all this effort in and, and we've made all this time for you and we've invited you and you still haven't come. Um, just go and talk to your people in the business. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that, you know, I work when I work with senior HR people now who are in businesses, it's not about HR telling the business what to do. It's about HR understanding what the business needs and then delivering that. Now, how long were you in the corporate world for in like uh, the HR department? How long were you there for? Probably 12 years in corporate HR in various different ways, um, working in recruitment functions, leadership development functions, learning and development functions, um, really getting a sort of broad base of understanding and then stepped out in 2017 to start my own business. And how long before 2017 did you actually start thinking of the idea of starting your own business? I think, I think inside I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, even when I was working in the corporate HR world, I was doing coaching for leaders. Um, I didn't realize that it was coaching at the time. It was kind of initially getting together with friends and sharing some ideas and then friends saying, oh, hey, you should charge people for this. So then getting recommendations for friends of friends and charging them for a little bit of advice and some support. Um, and then in my final role, I was running a, an eight figure business in New Zealand and um, a lot of the the role involved travel. I was traveling probably six days out of 14 um, overseas in various different parts of the world and dialing back into conference calls and board meetings and whatever it might be uh, from 
hotels and cafes and wherever I could find Wi-Fi, essentially. This was 2016, 2017. So Wi-Fi was reasonably available, but, you know, nomad nomading wasn't super popular. And I thought to myself, well, if I can do this in a GM role, why can't I do this from anywhere for myself? Um, and I, at the same time, I was going kind of through the, I guess, early midlife crisis thinking, is this what I want to do? Do I want to be an executive for the rest of my life? Do I want to do these crazy hours the rest of my life? Um, so decided to make that shift in 2017 to a more nomadic existence. Um, initially took a bit of a sabbatical, uh, went to Latin America and started traveling and diving and doing the things I love. And while I was on the road, again, encountered people who needed a bit of help. Um, so I thought back to these meetings I was doing from various parts of the world and thought, well, why don't I do coaching from various parts of the world? Um, there are platforms like Skype and things that exist. And as I got deeper and deeper into this world of talking to other people who were working from anywhere, I discovered even more platforms like Zoom and Hangouts and Teams and all these amazing things. This is all pre-COVID, of course, so these were quite foreign concepts at the time. And thought, well, actually, I quite like being in these workshops um, and coaching sessions where I don't necessarily need to be in the same room as the person. I can coach anybody anywhere on the planet in, on anything to do with leadership. Um, let's go with that. So the business grew organically over the last four years from just me um, to now we have a small team of coaches and consultants who are all focused on, on these leaders who are struggling with imposter syndrome, struggling with burnout, struggling with being overworked. Um, and we do it all pretty much, I would say 90% of it is remote. Um, it's pretty rare to get me in a room uh, nowadays. Uh, I can do it still, but actually it's, I would rather be you know, in Mexico or somewhere else in the world and, and you can be wherever you want to be and we make it work. So it sounds like it was a pretty organic kind of growth of finding your, your people, your clients. What, I mean, what, what do you think was, or if you recall, one of your biggest hurdles in kind of building this business, building this brand? Good question. You know, there was a couple of couple of hurdles that needed to be overcome. Initially, say in 2017, pre-COVID, um, saying to people, hey, can do you want to meet on Zoom? Um, people would normally say, you know, it would be better if you could come to the office or could, could we meet somewhere in a hotel, you know, hotel foyer or hotel lobby? Um, I, I'd just rather see you face to face. Uh, and the same thing with le leadership programs for organizations. They're like, well, can you fly and deliver it in our conference room? Or could you come in and do it, you know, for three days in this place? And that was a little bit of a challenge initially to kind of explain, A, I'm, you know, I'm in Peru right now. So no, I can't come to your office in Sydney or Auckland or Chicago or whatever it might be. Um, and actually it'd be cheaper for you if I don't fly. Um, the, the same thing for the programs. If I, if I don't need to fly for you, there's no flight and accommodation costs. Um, therefore, we can bring our program costs down. Therefore, your return on investment is going to be higher. Also, if we split this up over six weeks with 45 minutes uh, a week over six weeks rather than two days out of the office, um, that's going to be less disruptive to your people. So having those real sort of smart commercial conversations with people allowed me to get over that hurdle. Um, the other, probably the battle that I think many small business owners go through, and certainly when you're like me, you're working on four different continents, is being available for your clients when they want you, but also not being available at your own expense. Um, so for the, probably for the first year and a half, two years, I was 24-7, you know, probably well, probably 27. I was sleeping four hours a night. 
um, but I was available Saturdays, Sundays, 3 a.m. in the morning if it needed it, 2, 2 p.m. in the afternoon if it needed it. Whenever you needed me, I'll be available for you. And gradually over time, even though I'm on a different time zone to you, becoming a little bit more um, rigid and robust in when I'm available for clients so I can be at my best for those clients as well. Because if I'm waking up at 3 in the morning with the best will in the world, I'm probably not going to be my sharpest. Uh, whereas if I'm working on a time that's really a good time zone for me that also suits you, then then I'm going to get a better result for you, right? So limiting uh, the availability I had to preserving my weekends, preserving my nighttime and sleep um, so I can be super effective in the moment when we're together and, sh and sharp and focused. How, how did you do that? It's interesting. I think, again, the small business owner's mindset is I have to take the work. I have to say yes. Um, because if I don't say yes, they'll go somewhere else. And I found just being really honest and saying exactly what I said to you, you know, I want to be at my best for you. I've got to, I'm, I am actually going to be asleep during those times. Um, or I have other meetings in those windows. Let's here's four or five other options that work for me. Choose one that works for you. And there's great pieces of software out there like Mixmax and Calendly that make this easy. Of course, now those were pretty, again, pretty nascent or early in their life cycles when we're going back 2017, 2018. So I'd normally just go, you know, here's some, here's some calendar options that work for me. Choose one that works for you. And I find if you go into the neuropsychology of it, people react better to a choice than a no. So instead of saying, no, I can't meet then, you say, I would love to meet. Here's three options. Choose one that works is gets a way better result every time. Oh, yeah. Um, well, if if you could look back at your younger self, I guess, I mean, that, that person that was just joined the military before you actually saw combat, is there any kind of words of wisdom that you could provide to him before he actually was in the, the heart of everything in the combat, everything like that? I think, you know, there's, there's two phrases that keep coming up for me when you see, you know, you see these memes on Facebook, you know, what would you say to your 18 year old self? Um, the first one would be don't take yourself so seriously. Um, I, you know, I look back on myself 20 years ago, I was a very young, intense, um, serious man, uh, boy, probably. Um, and, you know, I was utterly focused on doing the best possible job at the expense of everything, including myself um, and relationships and, and you know, everything else was just focused on do the best. And that was partially driven by performance anxiety and imposter syndrome. And as I've learned more about those, I've obviously understood why I was doing some of those things. So don't take yourself so seriously. Um, the other one I think is great advice for everybody, which is enjoy the journey. Um, I think we all become extremely fixated on when I am a, I will be, um, you know, when I'm a CEO, then I'll be happy when I am a GM, then I'll have enough money to do this and I'll be happy. Um, and actually they miss those moments of joy along the way, um, that are worth celebrating, whether it's that small win for you or for your team, whether it's that hitting that, you know, incremental milestone. And one of the things we do in the experimental mindset is we set milestones so instead of going, when I'm a CEO, you go, actually, when I have my next piece of praise or when I have a really great conversation with my team or when I get some positive feedback, um, that's a milestone, right? Celebrate that moment and enjoy the moment that you're in because it's the, it's the mindfulness, I guess, of that moment that you're in that generates the momentum to keep going. There's a, there's a cycle we use, which is called motivation, activation, satisfaction. Um, and often to become motivated is quite a high threshold. But if you just do something small that gives you some satisfaction, it motivates you more. So if you're celebrating a win, 
you're in the satisfaction part of the satisfaction cycle, which motivates you. So celebrate a small win, it motivates you more, activates you more, satisfies you more, and you, you can hack the cycle like that. No, I think it, I think it makes sense. I, I had someone on a while back where we talked about the idea is that we try to look at our, our life and go, oh my gosh, I didn't accomplish this. But you look back and you go, I didn't climb this huge mountain, but I did climb a couple of these smaller mountains and I've got higher than most people have, have gotten to this point. So yeah, it's appreciating those wins is I think it's huge for a lot of us. 100%. And it's, you know, we encourage journaling. We have, we call it the wins log, um, but we encourage our clients to journal their successes. And you know, just, just literally yesterday, I was talking to my partner. Um, it's been a year now since I moved to Mexico full time. Um, and I was like, I, I, I keep going, I'm not doing enough. You know, I should be doing more. I need to push harder. I need to develop something. And then I sat down and I just thought for about you know, 40 minutes, what are all the things we've done this year? And when, when I actually made the list, it was, it was pretty significant. Um, you know, growing the business, rebranding the business, moving homes, renovating. There's so many things that we've done together. Um, but you, if you don't celebrate them along the way, it feels like you are climbing the endless mountain versus hitting those moments along the way. I'll, I'll finish it off with this question. If we were talking, let's say in five years from now, where is Jimmy going to be? Where's your business going to be? Great question. Um, Jimmy's probably going to be here um, in Mexico. Um, Jimmy will be flying to present and speak on keynote stages um, for influential events um, about the concept of experimental leadership and how that can really shift the dial for businesses. Jim will be working with um, amazing teams globally and supporting consultants in this team to work with those teams. Uh, and hopefully Jimmy won't be working so hard. Jimmy will be enjoying the fruits of his labors and celebrating every day. That's the plan. No, I think, it, I think it's great with uh, uh, everything being more online and having these virtual conversations. Like we're having a virtual conversation right here. You know what I mean? It, it gives the ability to live wherever you want to live, yet still offer that great level of customer service where wherever you might want to be so no, I, I appreciate it and thank you jimmy for for being here thank you for giving us such a great insight into you into the mindset into the mindset of being a leader hopefully everyone listening got some some great nuggets any last words you want to throw out there no i mean if um thank you for the opportunity uh, it's probably the most important thing and if anybody wants to reach out to me you can find me on on linkedin jimmy burrows or um on instagram facebook jimmy b leadership um would love to connect and continue the conversation appreciate it yeah everything's in there uh in the show notes here so if you're watching this on youtube twitch any of this platform it'll be in the show notes same thing with uh, itunes google play and hopefully everyone listening got some great nuggets again please subscribe please share and tell your friends have a great one, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.